This is the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by The Peers Project. Hello, peers. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akitanor, founder of The Peers Project, millennial entrepreneur, world traveller, podcast expert, and forever your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite inspiring millennial entrepreneurs from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer-to-peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way and why there's nothing better. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Sarah Pearson. What a gorgeous woman. She's our last week interviewee, Alexa's partner in crime. She too is a Harvard graduate, Forbes 30 Under 30 recipient of 2016, and the co-founder of Margot, the shoe brand for the modern woman. Based in New York City, Margot is a leading innovator for the women's footwear industry, and both co-founders have worked hard to create well-crafted, classic products. I had the absolute pleasure of sitting down and speaking with Sarah and discovering her story and her journey to becoming a New York-based 20-something-year-old shoe designer. Take a listen. Sarah, welcome to The Peers Project. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Of course. Thank you for having me. I'm excited (laughs) to chat with you. Perfect. So, you know, I was introduced to you by way of your co-founder, Alexa, um, and having you both, you know, come on the Peers Project is is just awesome. And I do feel very privileged um, to be able to, to chat, chat, chat to you guys here in New York. Um, so, yeah, I just want to say thank you so much for agreeing to come on. Oh, my gosh, of course. And welcome to New York. <laughs> thank you. Um, Perfect. So, you know, before we get into your work, I want to start with a question that I've often found has been very insightful and revealing, and that is, what is it, what did your parents do, and how has that impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career so far? Well, my parents were both orthopedic surgeons, um, and they met back in medical school in Philadelphia. Uh, my mother was a trauma specialist, so I grew up with her being constantly in and out of the emergency room. She did limb reattachments and like very complicated, long, uh, kind of microscopic surgeries. Um, which I always had tremendous admiration for, but did not necessarily think that that was the lifestyle that I wanted for myself, especially, you know, a few years she was called out on Christmas, for example. So she had very little control of her schedule. Uh, My father, on the other hand, was also a surgeon. He did general orthopedics, sports medicine. Um, Also interesting, but definitely not, I think, the career path for me. And it was always funny because sometimes people follow in the footsteps of their parents but in my case my parents always told me there were two things I could never be one was a doctor and one was a lawyer (laughs) so (laughs) um, nevertheless I got to college and I had a, a fragment of my mind that was interested still in medicine because it was what I knew and it was what I had grown up with and uh so I was thinking at first that maybe I would 
try to go that route and, and study uh, something in the pre-medical area. Had no idea uh, that I would ultimately end up being a history major or that after that I would end up owning a footwear business. <laughs> but day one, I fell asleep in biology 101, so I decided that was not the path for me and found myself in this course on the British Empire, and that's how I ended up falling in love with history. Yeah, wow. Okay. So... Let's do a deep dive into Sarah, the early years. So, you know, you attended Harvard as, you know, college. um, And tell me a bit about what that was like going into such an elite school at, at, you know, 18, 19 and, you know, not really knowing exactly what you wanted to do, maybe medicine, maybe something else. Tell me a bit about that experience there. It was, it was magical. Harvard is... it's hard to explain and it's hard to really quantify, but um, I felt just so lucky to be there. And, I, you know, again, like you said, I didn't know what I wanted to do or what I would end up studying or where it would lead me, but I just knew that it was a special place and that the people that I was at school with were also so special. There was also an, an element of it that was incredibly intimidating, and I remember. <laughs> those first few weeks just feeling totally overwhelmed because everybody was so smart and and so much smarter than I was and I just couldn't imagine how I was going to be able to keep up for four years but it was almost that feeling of being constantly unsettled that that ended up being a great thing about the experience and then you everybody finds their niche over time sometimes it just takes a little bit more searching. Mm. So talking about how you found your niche so I saw that you did a stint in London at Cambridge University was that correct? I did. Yeah. I spent the summer after my freshman year at Cambridge right. and wanted to have that study abroad experience, but didn't necessarily want to lose the time uh, in the other Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, while I was at Harvard. So I decided to do a summer there um, and, and study. Uh, I studied history and I studied finance. Um, it was wonderful. Yeah. So what did that. I often find that, you know, when you go overseas and when you study overseas, even live in a place for a long time, a longer period of time, you really, your eyes start to open up to what the world is like. And, you know, I imagine at probably 19, 20 at that stage, it was probably one of the maybe, maybe like first experiences you've had really maybe living by yourself in a different city. So what did that teach you about yourself and then also the world around you? Right. So I was actually very lucky to have spent uh, a gap year traveling oh, wow. before okay. I got to Harvard. So okay. I was very comfortable with living out of a suitcase and being on the road and also being by myself in an unknown place. And so on that gap year, I had time to go to or had the chance to go to Australia, Fiji, New Zealand, um, England, France. And so, uh, you know, for several months, I was living literally out of a backpack with like two shirts. Yeah. And, and so showing up to Cambridge with a full suitcase of clothes was like, heaven (laughs) and but but even still it was being in that kind of collegiate environment which was something that I hadn't experienced like an international collegiate environment was um wonderful and also too because they place such an emphasis on conversation and discussion and that's something that I don't think you totally get in the American experience and just sitting around having coffee um or you know talking about your courses or what you're reading or this lecture that you went to and just thinking, um, that was 
what I loved so much about that summer. Um, and there wasn't really the pressure of grades or choosing courses or getting in with the right professor. It was just a time to, to be and learn and meet people and um, meet people from all around the world too. Wow. Okay. So talk to me then. I'm very, I'm very curious to know, hear about your gap here. You went to uh, Australia at some point. What did you think about the different countries that you went to in terms of, I guess, maybe their progression and the differences with the US. What did you, what did you discover? So much. <laughs> and also learned so much about myself imagine. along the way too. So when I, when I first set out on that adventure, that was really the first time that I had spent really any time outside of the country. Um, and the, the first country that I showed up in was Fiji, which, um, you know, we were not like in a resort area of Fiji. We flew into um, uh, the second largest island and then immediately got on a truck, which took us up into the mountains where we were staying in a village. And the village was just a few miles down the road from the Fiji water plant. So the people that we were working with and um, and talking to and learning from and, and living with for several weeks um, were largely employees of the Fiji water plant. But it was also still, even though they had that industry, they were uh, still on the cusp of really modernizing the, the culture and, and the environments that they lived in. And they had only just um, received like running water and electricity a few years before. So it was... A, a totally out of this world experience for me. It was unlike anything I had ever seen before. Um, but what impressed me so much is that the people were so kind and so generous and, um, they didn't have much, but you know, everything that they had, they offered to us and it was just, um, it was really touching. Um, and, and I feel like I learned so much and I also learned a lot about like, you know, being uncomfortable, uh, not knowing a language, not knowing a country, not knowing where the heck I was, um, and, and finding my way that way. Um, and then by contrast, we, we went, then went from Fiji to uh, New Zealand and and that felt <laughs> completely different because all of a sudden it was you know a recognizable language a western culture and it felt much more familiar um, but still at the same time you know New Zealand has this incredible uh, ecological system and and also cultural history too with the natives of the island so it was um you know, also eye-opening in that respect. And then Australia is, you know, again, a completely different environment and also many different environments within the country, as you well know. And so I felt fortunate to be able to see Sydney, which is this kind of bustling modern city, but then also contrast that with, um, you know, this bus trip that we took from, like, Alice Springs to <laughs> Adelaide, which was like 10 that. days in a van with a wow. bunch of kids. And we would like camp out every night in the outback. Wow. And um, again, like talk about an out of body experience, but just it really opened my eyes to like how big the world was um, and, and how many different types of people and places there were, but also how much we all shared too. That's true. Yeah, wow. Okay, so taking all of that that you learnt into college and then obviously you had a stint in London and then through to maybe your first internship. So I saw that you did a series of internships and 
I found it really interesting. I always do find it really interesting looking into people's histories and what they've done. And I saw that yours were quite diverse. I think you had a time in politics, the politics, finance, and then the last one I think was consulting. Yes. So, <laughs> yes. So I'm just curious how, you know, your, what your first experience was like in the working world, um, having seen, having really seen the world. I mean, you, you did at such a young age, you, you've been to places that most people haven't been to. So what was that like? And I guess, did you ever feel like this wasn't the path for you or like, you know, being in a company or working for someone else wasn't for you? Yes, absolutely. So you alluded to the yeah. fact that my internships were spread across many different industries and I wouldn't call that period finding myself. Um, so the first internship that I ever did was in finance in New York. So I was working at a hedge fund. There was a mid, It was in a midtown office. It was a um, wonderful team that I was working for and I loved the people, but the work was just not for me and I could not get excited about it. And it was also the first time I was working with spreadsheets and building models. And I just remember calling my parents at the end of the first week and, and thinking, I don't know how I'm going to get through eight weeks of this. But in the end, I, it was, I was better for it. Um, and, you know, gained lifelong mentors too and still keep in touch with the people I worked for. But I definitely realized coming out of that that the finance world was not, it just didn't get me excited. And I also knew that I needed to be excited about what I was doing to really stay engaged and do good work. Otherwise, I would just kind of, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be, you know, happy going to work every day. Um, then I had the chance to work on the Romney campaign my junior year of um, college, which was very cool because the headquarters were just a short subway ride from Harvard. So I would finish classes, hop on the train, go to the headquarters, and was working on the um, data analytics team there. So working with um, you know voter data and polling and uh, the team that, that was trying to build kind of a, a new kind of model um, for tracking how we were doing in the polls um, leading up to the election, which was like the most exciting room to be in. Um, it was so cool, but also politics is totally exhausting and like not, you know, in no way glamorous at all. Um, but again, really, really eye-opening. I think I left that experience thinking like, I'm so glad that I did that, but I'm not sure the political world again is right for me. Uh, and then finally I had the opportunity to work in consulting um, with McKinsey down in Atlanta, Georgia for a summer. And um, that was really fun because I got to actually dabble in a few different industries um, through like the different nature of the pro projects that you work on. So sometimes your project is two weeks long, sometimes it's eight months long. And that's sort of the way that the consulting world works. But I did something in um, groceries and kind of consumer products. And then I did another sort of more logistics uh, study for a consumer products company. Um, and what I realized from that experience is that I really loved the consumer world and I loved thinking about like what makes a consumer tick. Um, and also too, I really loved the nature of the work where it was like constant problem solving. Um, and so I think that was the thing that, that was the internship that 
most resonated with me um, and also felt like I grew like leaps and bounds from the the structure that McKinsey has around like how you problem solve and how you think about um, you know going about accomplishing something or building a model or doing uh, you know an exercise or an experiment and uh, I, I came out of that actually thinking that I was going to go back to McKinsey. Um, and it was only until my senior spring, after I had signed the offer, found my apartment in Atlanta, uh, you know, fully gone down that route that Alexa and I ended up deciding to start Margo and, and walking away from the jobs that both of us had lined up. Yeah. Wow. So, so many questions come from that. I think one that I'm just genuinely curious about is the interview process to get into McKinsey. So consulting firms, from what I've heard, it's just so rigorous. Mm -hmm. And to get in, you have to know, literally, there's like a method to the way that you problem solve, as you were saying that you learned there, but that you also have to kind of know to get in. So talk to me about that preparation phase for that internship. It's, um, <laughs> the intern, I, you know, I partly blocked the interview process out from my mind because I remember it being very stressful. Uh, but you have to do these uh, case study interviews. So part of the interview is always more of a personal interview. So talking about your experiences, why you're interested in the company, why, why you're interested in the industry, where you see it taking you. Um, but then the other half of the interview is they hand you a sheet of paper and it has some facts or some charts um, about a, a company or a case that they're working on and then you have to answer a series of questions that they pose about you know what are your thoughts on you know what's happening with the company based off of these metrics that we're giving you um, and, and problem solve different ways and you know, sometimes people give the example of like how many golf balls can you fit into a Boeing 747 but um, what's interesting is that on the flip side of you know it was so nerve-wracking doing it uh, as an interviewee but then on the flip side what you really realize is what they're looking for is that you can break down a problem step by step. So if you're thinking about how many golf balls you can fit into an airplane, they want to see that first you think about, okay, let me, let me figure out how big a golf ball is. And it doesn't matter if you know that the golf ball is an inch in diameter or an inch and a half in diameter. It's just that you know that you need to, to find that volume and then estimate the size of the airplane and then do the basic math. Even if you get the number, the end number wrong, it's just about, you know, what's the method? Because if you have a calculator, you have an Excel spreadsheet, the numbers are going to be right. It's more about the process of how you get there. Yeah, wow. And so how did that process that you learned and obviously refined throughout your time at, at McKinsey, how did that translate just into solving everyday problems? So obviously within your work, but then just, just even problems like, I don't know, you know, what's What's the best accommodation to find in New York? Like, how do I best find the accommodation in New York? Does, does it help you with everyday stuff? <laughs> yes. Or, yeah. Okay. It doesn't. It doesn't. Okay. When you find yourself writing bullet points and yeah. like personal emails to friends, then you know that you've gone too far. <laughs> but I think that that um, that that mindset that they teach and that they drill into you, it's just like, let's distill this down to the most important points and let's figure out what we really care about and what our priorities are. And let's kind of be logical then about how we think through 
uh, you know, the method or the implications of, you know, whatever we decide. And, and I think that that applies in business and it also applies in, you know, your personal life too. It's like, if I'm thinking about what do I, you know, what am I going to prioritize in my life? It's like, what is most important to me and how am I going to make that a priority? And, you know, something even as basic as that is definitely rooted in <laughs> that, that mindset. Okay. So, what was most important to you at that time? So you obviously finished up at your internship. Mm-hmm. Are you going into your last year of university? Last year at yeah. Harvard, yep. So I mean, that's kind of where I'm at now, and I know that you know what I'm experiencing is you know the pressures and you know what the world's telling you to do or what your university is telling you to do. What did Harvard push a certain area to get into like the corporate world or you know Silicon Valley world or you know what did you feel you know having finished up at McKenzie and going into that final year knowing that you're done you're almost done Mm -hmm. I I think there's definitely a culture of being recruited by one of these big companies there's you know absolutely a cachet that's put on it um and it's sort of my thought about kind of the recruiting process is that as students, you're taught to jump through hoops, right? So, you know, in high school, you're taught to get your best GPA so that you can uh, and ace the SAT so you can get into the best college. And then when you get to college, you have to get the right internships and you have to get with the right professors and you have to, you know, get at a high enough GPA so that you can get your resume to the top of the pile when you're applying for a job. And it's constantly thinking about what's the next hoop that I have to jump through. And unfortunately, I do think that colleges are geared even in launching students into their careers and that hoop jumping mentality for better or worse. So it's, you know, are you going to go to law school? Are you going to go to medical school? Are you going to get recruited by a bank? Are you going to get recruited by Facebook? Are you going to get recruited by a consulting firm? And it's kind of this constant mindset of what do I have to achieve next? And, you know, obviously it creates very successful people, but sometimes it also then doesn't give you the freedom to really think about, well, what do I want to do. Um, And so, you know, I was lucky in that I really actually enjoyed the work that I did at the consulting firm, but at the same time, I had never really had the chance to think about, well, if I could do anything in the world, what would that be? And that's really where Margot came about, is that 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 senior spring, um, Alexa and I had signed these job offers, we had found um, these positions, and we sort of had the freedom to just you know, relax for the first time and like, I mean, really for the first time in our lives because, you know, for the last eight, ten years, we've kind of been prepping for where we got and then when when we got to where we were going, we were prepping for finding a job and then we finally found a job and it was like, well, wow. (laughs) What do we do? (laughs) And, And that's really, that freedom was where the idea for Margot really came about because we were thinking about our experiences in the corporate world and that pain point of like having to wear your sandals or your beat up sneakers to work and then quickly changing into your heels before your partners, you know, saw that you had worn your dirty shoes to work and thinking like, well, why couldn't we just have a shoe that we could wear all day everywhere with anything? Um, and, and from that idea, really the brand spun out from there. Wow. So talk to me a bit more about that. So the brand, so that initial idea, I didn't know that that's where it came from. I've done lots of reading about you guys, but I've never heard that. So that's really cool. So 
once you kind of had that idea going, did you think anything about pursuing it? You know, did you think it really felt right or were you just kind of like, that would be awesome to have those kind of shoes? Uh, I think that in in a way we thought about pursuing it and that we you know worked on it late in the night at the dining hall and we were creating the brand and we thought about the logo and the colors and how we would we sell these products where would we make them we were even taking secret trips to new york to like meet with people and prototype but all along we did so with the mindset that we would go where we had intended to go and that if it had become something, we would just pass it off to someone else to really like take it and run with it. And we had an advisor um, who is a wonderful guy who worked at the um, business school that we had kind of become close with over the course of our senior year. Uh, He at some point was like, girls, you guys are crazy to think that you could pass this off to somebody else because no one is ever going to have the passion for it, the the same passion for it that you do. And they're never going to be able to execute in the same way that you want to execute it. And also, too, if you try to do this and you try to do your other jobs, you're always going to feel torn between the two worlds and you're never going to be able to give either one your all. And so we said, you have to make a decision. You have to decide, are you going to go for this or are you not? And I think that was when Alexa and I were like, whoa, (laughs) you know, what, what, what would we do? Uh, And, and you might've read this if you sort of read our story, but there was this moment where we were um, sitting at commencement. So this drug out for uh, several months and and we were sitting at commencement and Cheryl Sandberg was speaking to um, our class and she kind of posed the question, what would you do if you weren't afraid? And I think that was really what resonated with Alexa and we just realized we're passionate about this and we think that it has legs let's go for it and let's just see what happens because now's the time to do it. We don't have families. We don't have mortgages. We don't have anything really tying us down and we have that freedom to just chase after this passion. Yes. I love that. Wow. Okay. So I just want to go a bit deeper into that speech because that clearly was the point with the trigger point. And I think that there often is a trigger point. Something happens and it's like, no, that's, this is what I'm going to do. Right. So, when she said, what are you afraid of? What initially came to your mind? What did you think when she was like, what happens if you weren't afraid? Gosh, I think in that moment I was, I was thinking, no one's ever asked me that question before. On the most basic level, I was just thinking I've never really thought about life that way. And she, her answer was, I would write this book, Lean In. And it had really driven her to pursue that passion of hers because it was something that she had been thinking about for many, many years about women in the workplace and how do you kind of unpackage all of the the pressures um, that affect them. And, And... I think the first thing that occurred to me was, well, what would I do if I weren't afraid? And then Alexa happened to be sitting like a few rows down from me. And I, we just looked at each other and we were like, okay, we know. Wow. That look. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. So what would you say then to one of our peers out there listening who maybe has an idea and maybe hasn't done the extent of research that you had done, but just knows it's good and it feels really right. But, you know, 
you know, why go out on your own, you know, when you've got such a comfort, you know, in terms of potentially a job lined up? What would you say to that, that 20-year-old? I would say, I would say that, first of all, you have to have the passion for it and you have to be resilient because Alexa and I talk about this all the time, but being an entrepreneur is in, it's not easy. And there are many people who would like to make it seem as if it were easy or glamorous and it's not. And the reality is that in a given day, you are a customer service agent, you're a salesperson, you are packaging boxes of samples to go out while you're also meeting with potential investors and advisors. And there's this mix, crazy mix of high level and low level um, and, you know, amazing glamorous things, not glamorous things, but like, you know, inspiring things and, and a lot of dirty work. And also there's, you know, these emotional highs and emotional lows, and they could come as quickly as like within the span of an hour. And so you have to kind of have this mindset of, of constantly being able to bounce back and, and just put your blinders on and have your vision and, and go after it and go for it and not listen to anyone or anything that tells you, you know, you can't. And you also, too, have to have, and going back to that problem-solving thing that we were talking about before, you have to, you have to constantly be thinking in, like, a problem-solving mindset where if an issue comes up, not treating it as an issue or not thinking about it as a problem, but it's like, okay, it's just a, how, how am I going to swerve or, or adjust or correct my course so that I can kind of get to where I'm going and, and make sure this is taken care of. Yeah. Great advice. Great advice. So what were the early challenges for you? You said they were not low times, but really difficult times. What were some of those those times for you? Yeah, I think, you know, the greatest uncertainty for us came in that first year when we, we had left school, but we were sort of in between um, working on the idea and building out the concept and actually launching the product and launching the website. And for us, having come straight out of school, having never really worked in the fashion space, there were so many learning curves that we had to overcome. And whether it was, you know, how do you build a website um, to we need to actually manufacture a product. Who is going to do that? And I think the most difficult nut to crack is really the manufacturing piece because the manufacturing world is in many ways very opaque. People are very protective of their connections. And it's also, you know, as a young brand or as an upstart, it's very difficult to find somebody who will kind of take a chance on you and, and be willing to work with you. And so fortunately, early on, we had met this couple in New York that we still work with today, and they've kind of become our product developers, product managers, and they connected us with the factories that we now work with. But there were many points, in it, to speaking of Lowe's, in which we thought, we don't know if this is going to work because we don't know if we can find the people who can produce the product at the price that we want to be able to sell it at, um, and also you know the quality that that we want and can execute on the idea too of this made-to-measure concept, um, which has become you know such a big part of our story. Yeah, how did you come up with that made-to-measure concept? I 
find it fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It really came from the fact that, you know, we knew we wanted to create the perfect flat that was both structured and elegant and comfortable. And really, as we started to unpack the construction of a flat, we realized that flats are, are universally recognized as some of the most difficult shoes to make and engineer and fit because there is like no wiggle room for like making a a shoe that's too wide or too narrow um, and they can like very quickly become uncomfortable or they can very quickly like look a little weird (laughs) and (laughs) and from that we realized that and started talking to people and realized that there are a lot of people who really struggled to find flats that fit because they didn't necessarily wear one of the sizes that most stores carry. So we're kind of at a point in the market where everybody's trying to reduce their inventory risk, which means that they're carrying sizes generally six, maybe five through 10. Sometimes they don't even carry half sizes and they definitely don't carry widths. And the reality is that, um, you know, 25% of women um, or more have a size greater than size 10 and most stores aren't even carrying a 10. Also, most women have wider feet. Um, a lot of women also have narrow feet. And so the, what this has created is it's created a, an issue where 88% of women are wearing the wrong size shoe, which has like far-reaching implications beyond the fact that your feet just hurt at the end of the day. And so we started to, to try to tackle that with the made-to-measure concept because we realized that this idea of one-size-fits-all, especially when it comes to footwear, just wasn't good enough. Yeah, wow. So how did you pitch that to manufacturers and people who have been in the industry for so long you know don't get me wrong incredible idea but if you know if if I was 50 and you know had had my store which I've always been working on in the shoe business and you know two 23 year olds were you Yeah, yeah came up to me and said look just everything that's happening here we don't really like we agree with that but we don't really we want to you know come up with this made to measure like um concept how was that? Uh, most people were initial reaction was you're crazy. <laughs> because I was gonna say yeah. nobody had done it. Certainly nobody had done it at like an accessible luxury direct to consumer price point. And it really actually took Alexa and I coming in and being so blind to kind of the legacies of the footwear industry and also to to the retail world and saying, we don't care that this is the way that most of the world does their business, but we want to do it our way. And... um, what it what it kind of does is it filters out the people who are like again problem solvers versus not um so there are some people that just said no absolutely not it won't work and then there are some people whose attitude was who knows if it'll work but let's try and let's see what happens and those are the people that we ended up having long-term relationships with and still work with them today Mm. great okay so that certainty that you had to go, I know this is how it's always been done, but this is how we want to do it. Where does that come from? And do you think it's something that can be developed? Uh, I absolutely think it can be. I think it comes, at the root of it, it comes from passion and it comes from vision and the ability to imagine the world or the brand or the product that you're trying to create. And it also takes a little bit of, of daring, a little bit of um, 
comfort with risk. And, (laughs) you know, I'm a huge believer in thinking that you can actually teach that because growing up, I was very, very cautious. And even today, I find myself tending to be more risk averse. And I have to relearn this lesson again and again and again. But Alexa and I always have have said that the greatest risks sometimes lead to the greatest rewards. Also, sometimes you fall flat on your face and you have to pick yourself back up. And so I, I think, though, that by putting yourself in positions, whether it's trying a new activity even or, um, you know, going on a gap year trip or putting yourself just in a position where you're uncomfortable gets you comfortable with being uncomfortable. And that's really what the life of an entrepreneur is, is it's being comfortable with being uncomfortable because nothing ever gets easier. You just get, you adjust to kind of the pace of life and and the way that this world works. Yeah. Wow. Learning so much. I'm learning so much. So currently where I want to talk about your progression. So the progression of Margot. So currently we're sitting at your beautiful studio here in New York and it's, yeah, it's even, it's even better than I, than I imagined. Um, so talk to me about how you go from those difficulties and those really hard times and people not believing in your idea at times to, you know, now having a space and being recognized for your work, um, especially with your Forbes 30 under 30 title that you won last year or that you got, you received last year. Talk to me about that. It's having those moments early on and having those lows even still, you know, today, considering how far we've come uh, makes the highs so much higher and so for Alexa and I we I think appreciate so much um, the opportunities we've been given um, and really have have kind of worked every step of the process um, to the point where you know we feel like truly truly so blessed to have come this far and to have been able to accomplish what we've been able to accomplish and we always laugh because every once in a while we'll think back on like what the early days looked like and the early days for us um, it was just the two of us we had no help we had no employees we had this tiny two person we work office downtown and every week when the made to measure shoes were would be ready um, at the factory, Alexa and I would drive out there and we would dust them and we would pack them and we would clean the soles and we would fold the tissue and we would see the shoes off. And and with everything, almost everything in the business, we've kind of taken that approach of like, let's, let's do it. Let's learn what it takes. And then we can understand and always appreciate and kind of every, every cog in the wheel that makes this possible. Um, so I think that you know, never kind of ceasing to to be comfortable with where we're at and always striving for more kind of keeps us moving and moving quickly. But also at the same time, too, we've learned to celebrate the little victories because that's so important in, in boosting not just our morale, but also the team's morale. Wow. I love that. I love that. So I just, I think, you know, as we're coming to the close of our chatting time today, our conversation today. I just love to acknowledge 
your business, the work that you've done. I think I love hearing people's journeys and your journey has been incredible. And I think that all of those, you know, as you said, maybe sharp turns or, you know, exactly. It all, it all actually makes sense now. And I think that's so cool to know that even at the time when it doesn't feel right, you know, there's always, there's always a light at the end of the tunnel and there's always, you know, a new path to take. So yes, I just, I just want to, yeah, congratulate you on your work. Oh, thank you. Um, And I think that, you know, the fact that you've made such an impact on the world already at such a young age is something that is is very profound. And that <laughs> That's <can> generous. <laughs> no, that we can all learn something from. Um, so my second last question would be to you, what does it feel like to be a young entrepreneur who you know, runs their business, is in control of their day-to-day? You said your parents, you know, they, the timing, they never really had control over that, but you do. What, is, what does that feel like? It's the most freeing feeling in the world, but at the same time, it also there's a lot of pressure that comes with it too because in the end, you have not, nobody to answer to but yourself. It's not, you're not answering to, you know, a boss. You're not answering to, uh, you know, a company. It's, it's you and it's a responsibility also too that we've taken on. Um, and sometimes it carries incredible weight uh, but also, too, it, it can feel very freeing. Um, so we, you know, in, some, in a lot of ways, we have the ability to control our own destiny and we can react quickly and, and we make, you know, so many decisions in a day. But at the same time, too, uh, you know, sometimes it can, it can often be overwhelming. And that's why I think it's so important to have a partner in this because in those moments when you do feel the weight of the world kind of sitting on your shoulders, you have a partner you can lean on. Uh, and, and Alexa and I have grown so much closer over the course of the last few years because of that. And we've learned to, to really lean on each other, uh, when we need to, and, and we've grown so much then together. So, um, I, it's an, absolutely incredible experience and I'm so glad that I've had it. Wow. Okay. So, you know, this has been absolutely so, so engaging and very insightful and as I thought it would be. So I want to finish up with our last question, which is how we finish all the interviews here at the Peers Project. And that is, what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? Oh, gosh. (laughs) Uh, I guess value is all relative, right? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Um, I think, I mean, personally, the value is that you feel, I would say you feel like truly satisfied um, with life and work. And uh, the line between life and work also gets blurred. So... When I'm working on things for Margot, it doesn't feel like I'm, you know, putting on my blazer and and going to the office. It feels just as as much a part of my life as everything else that's in it. And I love that um, because I think that's the thing that I struggled with a lot when I kind of was able to dabble in different businesses is is that felt very much like work. Um, And sometimes I kind of felt myself losing energy. Um, and, And so kind of 
being able to just live and breathe your passion in this way um, is, it just, I mean, it, like every day I wake up and I'm excited to go into the office. So for personally me, that's the value. And then I think you know, on a higher level, like the value of pursuing your passion is that you create and there are so many people out there who are creating like beautiful, special products and things, um, you know, pursuing ideas, um, kind of pushing just the world in a direction of innovation. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for um, your time today. It's been, it's yes, been thank you for coming by the studio. <laughs> of course. So where can people learn more about you and your work? You can um, learn more about Margot at uh, www.margoNY.com, and that's spelled G-A-U-X. <laughs> yep, perfect, awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll end with that. Peers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or any app where podcasts are played, and leave us a review. We produce with passion, and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at thepeersproject. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst your peers. <laughs>